Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, thank you, Krista. What a great introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. Appreciate that. Thank you for getting everybody fired up. Perfect hype man job you did for us this morning, and we're going to get rolling. But happy Father's Day to all of our dads out there. Happy Father's Day to all of you at home all of our dads who were not able to be with us this morning. Um, you know, this is kind of a new normal for us here at North Bible Church. Welcome to the second week of regathering together. Um, and I don't know if you're getting tired of that phrase, new normal. I'm kind of getting tired of it a little bit. For a couple of reasons, really, because everybody's saying it and nobody really knows what it means. I think that's the other, that's the, because for us, right, new normal is essentially just being flexible right now. And that's what it looks like. So I appreciate all of you being flexible. Of course, we had to make a change this week to go to one service today. And so that caused a lot of changes, a lot of moving parts, because, of course, the spike of COVID cases in our state, also the ordinances that have come out in our city, and then, of course, um, COVID hitting a little closer to home, actually affecting uh, someone in our church family. And so we want to be careful, and we appreciate those of you who have been flexible with us and making adjustments as we've needed to on the fly. We're going to probably continue to have to do that over time, and so thank you for being there. And, and, and for those of you who are online, I know that you made a, a decision in some ways for the safety of your family and for the safety of others to remain at home. You were planning to come. You'd even registered to come to one of our services, and you decided to stay at home. So again, thank you for being uh, flexible with all of this. But of course, as Krista mentioned, whether we are here in person or we're at home, we are gathering live together to worship this morning. And so we are all together here in spirit, even though we may be in different places. And so this is what I want to do. For those of us who are at, for those of us who are at home, those of us who are here, I want you to make as much noise as you can, and probably because you have masks on, maybe you can't make a lot of noise, but like some clapping, yelling, whatever you can so that the people at home can hear you and we can get this connection going on. Okay, ready? Go. Very good. Thanks. Good job, guys. We love you guys at home. Again, thank you for joining us. All right. So this morning, as uh, Krista mentioned, we are going to continue on our Crucial Questions series looking at the question of what will heaven be like? And this is part two, the exciting conclusion to part one from last week that we began uh, last week when we started talking about this question. Now, I promised you this week that we are going to focus a little bit more on the particular questions that were asked to us through our website. We're certainly going to get to those. We're going to directly answer some of the questions that we received, which are questions like, are there different levels of heaven? Who will be in heaven? When you die, where do you go? Does your soul go to heaven? Or what happens exactly when you die before the eternal state? Do some people get bigger mansions and rewards in heaven than others? Uh, will I, in, in heaven, will I still be me? Will people be distinct? Will I be able to recognize other people who are there? Will I be able to see loved ones? That kind of thing. Um, will animals populate the new earth slash heaven? And what will we do in heaven? Will we eat and drink? Will we enjoy work? Will we enjoy hobbies? What will a day in the life of heaven actually look like? So we're going to explore those questions a little later in the, in the message, and we're going to probably hit on a couple of more as we go through as well. But I want to be careful, as we were last week, to lay a biblical groundwork for what we are looking at when we talk about heaven. Because as we provide these answers to these specific questions, I want to be careful. I don't want it to just be kind of answering questions in a kind of like a trivial manner about what these things might be like. Instead, what I want to do is to allow you to have, I think more importantly, what we're doing over these couple of weeks is to allow you to have a biblical framework or a biblical imagination, as we called it last week, 
um, because it's going to enable you then to be able to get into the scriptures yourselves and to make those decisions and to kind of cultivate what is it that the Bible actually has to say. And I think it's the difference between giving someone a fish and teaching someone to fish, right? You give someone a fish, they eat for a day. You teach someone to fish, and they'll eat for a lifetime. So I want you to, I want to teach you how to fish through this rather than just giving you a fish. And it's the difference between when topics like this come up and people ask you questions about what heaven is like and what your hope in Jesus is all about. It's the difference between you saying, well, my pastor said this or my pastor said that versus, well, the Bible says this, and this is what I understand this to be saying, okay? Maybe you see the difference there. And I I definitely want us to be in that second category as much as we can, because honestly, you can just Google all these other kinds of answers if you need to, right? Um, And so what's more important is that we build a biblical foundation and a biblical imagination. So to that end, we're going to spend some more time this morning developing the framework that we built last week. If you remember last week, the big takeaways we had at the end of the message were three key characteristics that we know that are going to be a part of heaven according to scripture. And the first one is that heaven, and we're talking about heaven, we're talking about the eternal state, is a place for God's dwelling. That it's going to be a physical place that God establishes so that he can dwell with us. So we dwell with Father, Son, and Spirit for eternally, for eternity as God's people. Secondly, heaven is a place with God's blessing. So that many of the things that we see today that we interact with in life, that we call blessings, the best moments in life, the best experiences we have, even the best people in most cases, especially if they're Christians, we will get to experience to another degree in heaven. Now, we don't know exactly what those things will look like. We'll hit on some of them this morning. But those are the blessings of God that will flood throughout the entire new earth, new heavens and new earth that we call the eternal state. And then third, heaven is a place of God's glory. We talked last week about the word glory meaning weight. This will be the substance of the weight of the glory of God, his presence, his character, his splendor everywhere, and in everything that we do and everything that we participate in. What a wonderful, beautiful thing. So we want to make sure that this is the grounding from where we can leap. You can think about those three characteristics kind of as fence posts, and as those fence posts form a boundary, within that boundary is where the biblical imagination can play. Outside of that boundary, um, though it probably doesn't fit scripturally. But if we're playing with inside those boundaries, then we can see that we have a biblical imagination for imagining the things that might be in heaven, how they might be, and the things that won't be in heaven. Now, you may have noticed this before, but a lot of times when we talk about heaven, people want to talk about the end times. Have you noticed that? A lot of people want to talk about the end times. The end times is something, and how the end of the world is going to happen, and all those things, has been something that has captivated human civilization throughout history. I mean, think about this. A lot of the biggest blockbuster movies um, have, have some element of the end of the world to them or post-apocalyptic realities and those kinds of things. I mean, we're obsessed with this idea of the end of the world. In Christian circles, in fact, about 15 years ago, what was the biggest book series ever to hit the planet in Christian circles? The Left Behind series, right? Everybody wanted to know, how is the world going to end? And I understand that. It's certainly in the Bible. We got a lot of questions come online as well about the end times and the way things are going to end. And so I understand that people are concerned about that. But I think in some ways, um, it's a little confusing to me because it always seemed a little strange that we should put so much energy and interest into something that's actually a very small piece of the biblical story. Because in reality, when we're talking about end times and we see the end, when the Bible talks about the end, it uses this word telos, which telos means more purpose or goal than it does end of things, in the sense of things blowing up and people's faces melting off and those kinds of things, right? 
It's not the end of the world. It is the, the destination that we are arriving at that the Bible is talking about, right? And there is some events that lead up to that ending, to that telos, but that doesn't mean that those things are necessarily the end of the world. Now, and I think when we understand that important thing, that end means goal, it means destination, it means purpose, the promises of God throughout redemptive history start to make a lot more sense. I think about it this way. I'll think about it with a simple example. The difference between the end and getting to a destination and why this is important even for us to understand today. Um, I know this is kind of a sore subject for some of us because we didn't get to take our family vacations this summer and maybe you had to cancel your family vacation. But think about taking a family vacation. When you, when you, a lot of us have been through this, obviously. When you get together to plan a family vacation, so much of what you do to prepare for that vacation is determined by the destination that you're going to, right? So if, for instance, uh, you know, depending on money, the people who are going and how far away that destination is going to be, you may drive in a car or you may fly in a plane. Depending on what the climate and what you're going to be doing, the activities that you're going to be participating in when you get to that destination determines what you pack and how you prepare for the trip. Even the excitement and the anticipation level of your family, depending on the destination, can change from one place to another. In other words, there's going to be a different reaction, at least in my house, to going to Disneyland versus going to Grandma's house in Oklahoma, right? I mean, nothing against Grandma in Oklahoma. We love Grandma in Oklahoma. But that's a very different reaction, at least in our house, probably because we don't have a Grandma in Oklahoma. Maybe that's it, but... But when Disneyland is on the table, boom, there's a different level of excitement and anticipation. So you get the point. It's all defined by the destination, where you are going, and the anticipation of that destination. Now, in the same way when it comes to life, when it comes to the journey of life, if you will, it's important to know that destination. It tells you so much about where you are going and what the Bible is doing as we go through this story of Scripture. Now, last week I made the comment that the entire Bible is about heaven in some way or another. And I believe this is really true, especially in the New Testament. So that when we read the New Testament, the New Testament always has in context this telos, this goal purpose of heaven, the eternal state in the background. And I think this is critically important for us if we're going to understand reading the New Testament because behind everything is this context of anticipation of what the eternal state will ultimately look like. So this is no small thing. And let's look, I want to show you one place in the Bible where this is important for us to understand telos as a goal or a destination. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, let's stop right there. You see that statement right at the beginning. The end of all things is at hand. Now, if we were to read this as, the finality of all things, as the blowing up of all things, as the burning up of all things is at hand, is here with us, this doesn't seem to fit the context very well. Especially when you read the rest of the verses here, which are all about the ways that we should be living ethically, we need to be loving one another, serving one another, showing hospitality. Peter goes through this whole list. right? But if we read into this, this understanding that this is the goal, the end of all things, the goal of all things, the purpose of all things, it changes really how this is understood. And I think fits much better the context. We continue in verse 8. It says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, 
Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, so if you take the end there to mean that this is the goal or purpose, what Peter's actually saying is, look, the goal of all things has begun to arrive in you as new creations. Because the goal is new creations, new heaven, new earth. And if that is already happening among you, you are now the church who is living out the reality that is to come. It's like a precursor to what is coming. And so this is how you live. You live differently. You live in a way that you love and you serve one another and you provide hospitality. And by doing these things, you bring glory to God, which is pointing ultimately to what the eternal state will look like. And so in light of the destination, this is now how You live in ramping up towards what that destination will be. And so as we live that out as the church, we show the world what it is that is the hope of our salvation, that this is real, it changes lives, it makes us different as new creations built for the new creation that is coming. So this also brings, I think at the end, as Peter mentions the glory of God, really the ultimate purpose of all of these things into focus, which is the glory of God. So if I were to ask you this morning, Why is it that God created in the first place? How would you answer that question? We know God created the heavens and the earth and everything we see and even us and everything that is in creation, but why did God create? Do we have an answer to that in Scripture? Well, I think think we have a a good answer to this. Um, He created out of the overflow of his glory. That's simply put. Now, that's a big statement, but simply put, he created for the purpose of displaying his glory everywhere. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, God's purpose was for his goodness to overspill his own being, as it were. He chose to create the heavens and the earth so that his glory could come pouring out of himself in abundance. He brought a physical reality into existence order that it might experience his glory and be filled with it and reflect it. Get this, Every atom, every second, every part, and every moment of creation. I love that last part especially because it tells us, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, and as we see throughout Scripture, what this phrase, all things, means. All things in Scripture means every atom, every second, every part, every moment of creation. Which is important for us to know because if we're asking what exactly will be present one day in the eternal state, it will be everything that God redeems. Every second, every moment, every atom, every piece of creation. And again, you may see this uh, phrase, all things, you may have noticed, it's used a lot in the Bible. There are many places throughout Scripture, in fact, I made a little bit of a list that I was going to go through with you this morning, and I realized that'll take 20 minutes just to go through half of the list of what all things, how many times all things shows up in the Scriptures. In many cases, that phrase, all things, refers to one or two things, creation or redemption. God creating all things, Jesus, God through Jesus redeeming all things. I want to give you a sample of what that looks like here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, and in Revelation 21, 5, both in the same book, both, of, both a part of a book that speaks to this telos, this end, this goal. Revelation 4, 11 says this, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne, who we know is Jesus, said, 
Behold, I am making all things new. I am redeeming all things. That phrase, all things, throughout Scripture, unites creation with redemption beautifully. In fact, if you want to do just a a study on the story of redemption in Scripture, just type that phrase, all things, into like an online Bible search and just read all the Scripture that comes up. Most of it will have to do with this idea of creating all things and redeeming all things together. It joins those activities together beautifully. And I think all things really does mean all things. You may remember on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday now, Jesus rides in to the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday before he is crucified. And all the people are gathered there. There's a crowd that's making a lot of noise. They're shouting Hosanna to Jesus and praising him. And the religious leaders come up to Jesus and they say to him, those people are making too much noise. You need to quiet them down. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out, right? That's a little bit of hyperbole by Jesus in the moment, but it communicates to us an important truth that even the rocks display the glory of God in them. Beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, so one more thing we need to cover quickly before we hit the Q&A part of this message and we dive into those questions. If you remember back to the creation story, there were three things that God told human beings to do in the garden before the fall. These were the three things. To work and to keep the creation. Work meant to produce, to take the resources that God had put into the earth, to create, to make tools, to develop technology, all of those things and to keep, which means to care for and to enjoy the creation. God gave the creation for his glory, but he also gave it to us for our enjoyment, and we're called to enjoy it and to care for it. Secondly, he told us to exercise dominion or authority over creation for his glory. We were placed as image bearers right in the middle of creation to represent God's authority and to represent his glory everywhere in creation where we went. That's from Genesis 1.28. And then finally, he says to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply new human beings, right? Have, have more babies. Genesis 1, 28. Now, the reason I point this out is because these are all things that we were told to do before the fall. And I think all of them, except for one, continue all the way through Scripture and give us a window into what things might look like in the eternal state. And what's the one that's taken off of this list? You may know it. Be fruitful and multiply right? Jesus in Matthew 22 said that in heaven people will not be married, which makes sense because when we get to the eternal state, everything will be full of life. There won't be any need to create any more human life. It will all be there in abundance. But the other two, the two that have to do with um, caring for the creation, working the creation, developing the creation, enjoying the creation, exercising dominion, all those things carry over, I believe, all through scripture. They are never taken out, and they're continued into the eternal state. So if you take those things and you combine those with the three key characteristics of heaven from earlier, heaven is God's dwelling place, it's a place with blessing, it's a place for God's glory, and then we're going to be doing things like working, caring for creation, exercising dominion over the new creation, we now have a pretty robust perspective and biblical imagination to leap from. So I think we're ready to start answering some of these questions. So I'm going to answer a few of these, several of these, and then at the same time, I just, want, I just want these to serve as examples or models 
for you to kind of do your own research and for you to come up with your own answers in some ways about what this says. Now, I certainly have biblical backup for why I answer the way that I do, but I'm also adding a little caveat in this as well, is that, and I'm giving a, I'm actually giving a confidence rating to each of my answers on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like fully confident. So there's going to be no 10s. I'm not going to get to a 10. Uh, The highest I'll get is to a 9.5 on these answers. But I'll give you a confidence rating because I'm telling you there are some things we know and some things we don't know, some things I would like to believe, and I have reasons for maybe believing them, but uh, they're not necessarily bulletproof, okay? So here we go. First question is this. Will there be marriage in heaven? Now, we already answered this one in some ways. Jesus told us there will not be marriage in heaven, but the question is why? Why won't there be marriage in heaven? I mean, the closest human relationship we have on earth is not going to carry over into heaven? What is that all about? Well, this is the reason, and the reason goes back to the ultimate purpose of marriage. I always like asking married couples what the ultimate purpose of marriage is according to the Bible, especially Christians, because almost every time they get it wrong, and then I get to laugh, and then I get to seem smart by giving them the right answer. But also, this is another thing, another thing, and this is especially funny in premarital counseling. I've just done a lot of premarital counseling, right? And you get these couples who are mostly in their early 20s, and they're so in love with each other, and all they can see is, like, love as they look at each other, and their entire world is just about how much they love this person. And you bring them into the first counseling session, and the first question I ask them, all right, give me the biblical purpose of marriage. And the air just lifts right out of that room, right? And, but you'll hear them, and they'll, and they'll, and they'll, they'll answer uh, mostly selfish answers, if I can be honest. Women will typically say something like, well, he makes me happy, or he makes me laugh, or he lets me be myself. Uh, I love his sense of humor, whatever it may be. And then guys, guys are worse. They're not nearly as nuanced in this. Guys will usually want to say, I know in like nine times out of ten, well, she's hot. That's why I'm marrying her. And you, but usually, but then they realize like they're with a pastor, and so they'll say something like, well, she's beautiful inside and out. Which really just means, well, she's hot. That's why I'm marrying her, right? 22-year-old guy, that's all he's really thinking about. But look, whether those answers are selfish or romantic or whatever it may be, the answers are usually wrong because the, uh, in all the years I've been doing this, there's one person who has who gotten this right, and they added it to the end of their answer. But it is this. The Bible tells us the reason why marriage exists, according to Ephesians 5, is that it models and pictures Jesus' relationship with the church. That's its ultimate purpose. And so we don't need marriage in heaven because the fulfillment of that picture will be all around us everywhere. This is why when John sees the vision of of the eternal state in Revelation, he sees the wedding celebration of the Lamb because Jesus is joined with his church and the entire environment, worshipful, as as Krista was talking about earlier, as we worship together in the multitudes, it's going to be one big wedding celebration for all of eternity because Jesus has been united to his bride. And as we look back and we see all of the marriage imagery throughout the Bible and the importance of wedding celebrations, it just makes sense. All of this is building up to that climactic moment. So the questions that we typically get about this as we talk about marriage and those kinds of things, right, we get to see is really the union of Jesus with his church. There's not going to be marriage union anymore in the same way, but there will be a marriage union of Jesus with his church. So my confidence level on that one is a 9.5. I can't say 10, but as close as I can, 9.5, no marriage in heaven. All right, second question, what will we be like in heaven? Will we recognize other people? What will our bodies be like? Well, we covered this fact last week that we will have physical bodies 
in a physical place in the eternal state called heaven, or as the Bible calls it, the new earth as a physical place. But what will our physical body look like? Well, I think we actually have a good model for this. We have Jesus' resurrected body being described for us in the Gospels. And because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and Paul actually uses this as an example of what our resurrected bodies might look like, we can look into this a little bit more. And fortunately, the gospel writers do present us with a few things about what Jesus' body looked like. After Jesus was resurrected, he was with the disciples for 40 days, and a few things happened there. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus was recognizable to his disciples at times and unrecognizable to his disciples at others. And I think what this hints at is that in a lot of ways our bodies are going to be the same as they are now, but they're going to be unrecognizable in a lot of ways in the sense that they'll be different and glorified. Now, remember, Jesus had to open the eyes of his disciples to recognize him, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't something that wasn't human, right? They didn't look at him and be like, well, this is something completely different than what we remember Jesus being. They looked at Jesus, they recognized him, and they saw Jesus as who he was as a human being with a physical body. Now, Jesus did some very normal human things like talk and walk and eat, but he also did some very abnormal things like walk through doors and walk through walls and appear and disappear at a moment's notice. Now, we don't know how much of that has to do with the fact that he is the Son of God after all, and he is divine, so maybe we might not have that same kind of interaction with physics, but I think physics will be a little bit different, and I think the fact that our resurrection bodies will be so different physically, it will, you know, we'll be surprised at some things that we'll be able to do. Will we fly? I don't know but it's not impossible that we won't, right? Those kinds of things. But again, this is the important thing. The disciples recognized Jesus, and they saw him as himself, which I think points to the fact that we will, first of all, be distinct people, and that we will recognize our loved ones and our friends when we move into the eternal state. And that relationship that was built here will carry on into eternity and will continue to be built upon, right? And so, um, but it'll be different. It'll be as brothers and sisters in Jesus's kingdom. It won't be full of jealousy and insecurities and hang-ups and identity issues and all those things that harm human relationships right now. But we are told in scripture that we will also be fully transformed into the image of Christ in the eternal state. John tells us when we see him, we will be like him, which I think includes a sinless version of ourselves, having the effects of sin removed from our bodies, no more disease, no more chronic illness, which I believe includes things like disabilities, missing or undeveloped body parts, physical and mental illnesses, addictions, all those kinds of things. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a Christian author and speaker, well-known Christian author and speaker, but also a quadriplegic. She, was, uh, she became a quadriplegic when she was 17 as a result of a diving accident. She says this when she thinks about how her body will be affected in the eternal state. I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that, give, that that gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied? Or someone who has or brain injured or multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Man, that's amazing. Now, we know that Jesus died in his early 30s. Does that mean we're all going to be in our early 30s in the eternal state? I don't know. I hope not, because my, my athletic peak and my physical peak was more in my early 20s. 
And I hope to beat Wes Buchanan someday in basketball in the eternal state. And so I, I need to be about 22. And if Wes is 40, I think I can beat Wes in basketball. So I'm looking forward to that. But seriously, though, I mean, if you think about what our bodies are going to look like, I think, imagine this. The most beautiful, strongest, most fit person you have ever seen on this earth is still a product of the fall. Randy Alcorn puts it in perspective. He says, look, if we saw Adam and Eve in the garden, the majesty of what they look like would take our breath away just by looking at them. On the reverse side, at the same time, if they saw us, they would pity us. <laughs> so uh, let that just be a reminder. If you need an antidote for uh, vanity at some point in your life, just imagine Adam and Eve seeing you and pitying what you might look like, right? Or whatever. I don't know if that helps or not. But anyway, but as Randy Alcorn says, the sinless beauty of the inner person will overflow into the beauty of the outer person. We'll feel neither insecurity nor arrogance. We won't attempt to hide or impress. We won't try to look beautiful. We will be beautiful. Look, sign me up for that. I'm all on board with that. Confidence number in that answer is an eight for me. So, Next thing, next question. We know we have physical bodies, but will we eat and drink in heaven? I think this is an emphatic yes, and I'm really confident about this answer because food and drink are a big deal in the Bible. If you haven't noticed that before, notice all the festivals and the feasting and the food and drink that's going on. And we realize that, especially in the ancient world, and this is still true today, that food and drink is more than just about nutrition and feeding us so that we're healthy. Food and drink has to do with the enjoyment of food and drink. It has to do with the enjoyment of sitting down at the table with other people and enjoying a meal, the fellowship that goes on there. We see Old Testament festivals all throughout the Old Testament. We see this pointer of Jesus who sits down and institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the middle of the Passover meal, pointing to the wedding feast of the Lamb for eternity. All of these things are encapsulated by food and drink. And I think we, we also know that Jesus ate fish with his disciples in that 40-day period after he was resurrected. Um, all of these things. And so what, what I think will be beautiful is that we're going to be able to just enjoy the taste of sharing, uh, enjoy the taste of food and sharing a meal with other people. Now, what we'll eat, I'm less confident about. I don't think we're going to need to eat to satisfy hunger, hunger or nourish our bodies. I think eating food will be more for the celebration and the joy of eating food and the tasting of food and those kinds of things. I hate to break it to you, but I don't think we're going to have meat. Those of you who are meat eaters in heaven, there's not going to be steaks because animals would have to be killed. I don't think animals are going to be killed in the eternal state. Yeah, I've just told you there's no steak and there's no sex in heaven. So I'm, uh, hopefully this gets better though. The, so this is the thing. I really believe that even the best steak that you've had, the best steak that I'm a big steak eater, even the best steak I've had will be a distant memory compared to the food that we'll enjoy in heaven. And this is another thing. Is our taste buds will be post-fall. They'll be redeemed taste buds. So they're going to taste the food exactly as it was designed to be tasted. So don't worry about the steak. There's going to be better food for us in heaven. So what will we eat and drink in heaven? I believe we will, and my confidence level of that is an 8 out of 10. Okay, so what about animals? I know everybody wants to know about animals. I know my daughter's a big animal lover. Are we going to see animals in heaven? And will we see, this is a big question, will we see our pets who died in heaven again? Well, first I think it's important to remember that animals are God's idea. Animals bring God glory. The beautiful animals that we see displayed throughout creation right now remind us of God's creativity. The powerful animals remind us of God's might. I mean, all of these things bring glory to God. We see animal imagery all throughout Scripture. God himself portrays himself metaphorically as an animal. He refers to himself as a hen, a bull, a leopard, a lion, a bear, among other things. Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah and, of course, the lamb of God. 
And so we see that throughout all of Scripture. But beyond that, we're actually told that in the new heaven, or in the new earth, in heaven, the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the child will play in the snake's den. And I think as we take those things to mean and understand that the Prince of Peace will reign everywhere, it's going to be a wonderful reminder as we're walking around on the new heaven and we see this lion and lamb, predator and prey, just sitting next to each other, just hanging out. It's going to be a reminder of like, oh my gosh, those animals used to eat each other. And now the Prince of Peace who has brought peace everywhere, it's a reminder of who he is. Okay, so what about pets then? I think this is a good one. And it actually has a biblical answer, I believe. It goes back to the dominion call of Adam in the garden. And if you remember this, before the fall, after God creates animals and he's created Adam, he brings all the animals to Adam to be named. Now this is a picture of his authority over the animals, but also of relationship there. Right? You know that if you've ever named one of your pets, there's a relationship that goes on there. Uh, we didn't get a chance to name our dog because our dog was a rescue dog. He already had a name. But I have many nicknames for my dog. And those nicknames are built out of our relationship and our experience. One of them, in, in fact, was an experience where he tore up $2,000 worth of the air conditioning unit in the backyard. So I have a special nickname for him that came out of that experience that I probably shouldn't repeat here this morning. But there's something that goes on. There's a relational aspect of animals with human beings. And now, look, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like. I believe there will be animals. I don't know if we're going to have pets there. But also think about this. Extinct animals might even be possible there, including dinosaurs might be back. I mean, imagine Jurassic Park in heaven. Dude, it'd be awesome to ride the back of a T-Rex and just kind of ride around. I mean, these things are all certainly possible. But get this, if that's not crazy enough for you, get this. There are some Jewish Bible scholars who actually believe that in the garden animals talked and that we will see animals talk again in the new earth. And this may seem crazy, but think about this from a biblical standpoint, right? The serpent spoke to Eve in the garden, and Eve was not alarmed by it. She wasn't like, oh my gosh, why is this serpent talking to me? And Satan, you know, of course, was trying to be very uh, coy in the way that he tempted her. He didn't want to alert her to something being weird, so he wouldn't come to her as a talking snake if talking snakes didn't exist at the time. I don't know if I believe all that, but it's not a bad argument, and it's made from Scripture. So that's the imagination of all of this. So whether we have, I think we will have animals, whether we have pets in eternity, I'm not really sure. Uh, whether our pets will talk to us, I really hope that happens, because I'm honestly still waiting for an apology from my dog about tearing apart that AC, and if he could tell me I'm sorry in heaven one day, that would make my day. So I'm still holding out hope for that. So confidence on animals. A 9, 9.5, animals will be there Pets, about a seven, and talking pets, maybe a four, all right? Okay, so here we go. few more with the time that we have left. i got to hit on these. Uh, first of all, what will we do in heaven? Will there be sports and entertainment? So what will a day in the life of heaven look like? Will we work? Will we enjoy hobbies? Will we discover new things, participate in sports, enjoy entertainment, like music and singing and live shows and all those things? I think one thing to notice from the, from the beginning of Scripture, the journey forward to the end of Scripture, is that Genesis 1 starts in a garden. Revelation 21, the end of the redemption story, ends with a city. And when you combine that with God's command to work and to keep the creation, I think there is a picture there, and I'm not alone in this. Many biblical scholars have latched onto this, and I agree with them, that there's some kind of development that happens from the garden to the new earth, and that how we've developed this world and how we work to create and and create technology and develop technology will actually in some ways be redeemed and be carried over into the new earth. And that continued discovery and continued invention and continued development of technology and those things will continue on a daily basis in the new earth. 
and it'll be work without toil and work without thorns and thistles. It'll be the best aspects of what you love to do when you're working. And if you don't love your job, it's the best aspects of what you like to do in your hobbies. How will you use your gifts uniquely? They'll be unbridled in the new heaven and new earth because they'll be without thorn and thistle and, 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 and absence of toil. So I think sports, yes, entertainment, yes, singing, all of that stuff. The things that God has given us as gifts will in many ways carry over and be redeemed in the new world or in the new, in the new earth. And so confidence level on that is an eight. Okay, so what, are there going to be different levels of heaven? What will, uh, what will be, uh, uh, will there be different rewards or bigger mansions for some people in heaven? Look, part of this question when it was asked to us was asked in reference to Paul's uh, reference in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 2, where he talks about the third heaven and that he had this vision or someone he knew had this vision where he was taken up to the third heaven. And so the question is, is that does that imply that there are different levels of heaven? I think as we've, as we've seen this, as we've kind of gone through this in, in the biblical community and as scholars have fleshed through this, what they've identified is that really that third heaven is not a reference to different levels of heaven. It's actually a reference to what we call the intermediate state. It's a reference to what happens when, let's say, a believer dies today. Where do they go? Which actually answers that question. What, do, what happens to us when we die today before the eternal state? We enter into the intermediate state where we are with God, where Paul says we are absent from the body but with the Lord. We are absent from this world, but we are with the Lord in this place that is now called heaven right now, the intermediate state where God is. Not the eternal state, but the intermediate state. And that's really what Paul was referring to. Okay, so then this question. Does the Bible talk about different rewards in heaven? Are there better rewards based on how we live? I think there are plenty of examples in Scripture about rewards that will be given to us in reference to those things. From Jesus telling us to lay up treasures in heaven, to Paul saying in Ephesians 6, 8, that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. And then Jesus pictures what will happen as we approach him as our master during those days in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. And he says, the master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Herman uh, uh, Bavinik, uh, I probably totally butchered that, but he says this about what that will look like one day. Each person will there receive his own name and his own place in accordance with the works of faith and love which he has done on the earth. In proportion as a person who has been living faithful in using the talents given him, he will in the kingdom of God receive greater honor and lordship. Thus, all of us share in the same blessings, the same eternal life, and the same fellowship with God. But there is nevertheless a difference among them in brilliance and glory. I think this is important to remember that when we're talking about this, we're talking about the saints of Jesus who have been redeemed. This is not good deeds that win our salvation, but that once we are saved, our deeds are no longer filthy rags before the Lord. They actually have an eternal impact because we are new creations sowing for a new creation reality. So yes, there does seem to be some kind of reward. But the beautiful thing is that there won't be jealousy, there won't be coveting, and those kinds of things when we get there. Unnecessary sinful competition. And so I give, a, I give a confidence rating of a seven to that. Okay, so a couple more. I just want to finish with the few minutes we have left. This next one is a question that was asked this week. A little bit more of a different question. Not as lighthearted as maybe some of the previous ones, but I think an important one nonetheless. What happens to babies who die? Do they go to heaven? That was a hard one because, of course, it gets, gets me a little emotional because we're referring primarily to cases of miscarriage and cases of abortion. 
And I'm convinced, first of all, that every life created is created to give God glory. And this includes every life from conception forward. When David says in, first, in Psalm 139, I should say, that you have knitted me together in my mother's womb. And God says to Jeremiah in a place like Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I believe this is more than metaphoric hyperbole. I believe this is actually God saying, from the beginning, when you were conceived, I had a plan for you. I knew you. You were a living being from the very beginning. And in the cases, so in the cases of babies lost to miscarriage, uh, this is actually personal because my, my wife had a miscarriage uh, several years ago, and I know that many uh, women in this room, maybe you've experienced that, many of you at home maybe have experienced that, or maybe some of you have had babies aborted, and you regret that decision, and you wonder whether or not you may see that baby, excuse me, or that person at some point in heaven, right? And I believe those lives lost, like any other life lost, were created as a nephesh, right? A living being created in the image of God with soul and body for eternity. That's a confidence level of 9.5 for me. But where I would say I don't know is whether all of those babies who were miscarried or aborted will be with us and with the Lord for eternity. I would like to say yes. I look forward to meeting our fifth child someday. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> and spending eternity with them. But I, I can't say for sure. But what I can say is that the Lord loves that person more than I do and that I understand that the shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep hear his voice. And since heaven is about God's glory and there is nothing that brings God glory more than human beings who reflect God's, God's image to creation, I think at least some of those children and maybe all of them will be in the eternal state with us. And without going into an age of accountability type discussion, I believe the same goes for babies and young children who have died after being born or at a very young age. So finally, this last question that brings this kind of all together. Who will be in heaven? And I think the simple, the simple answer to this is those who belong to Jesus. In other words, those who have trusted in Jesus as their king and savior, the one who died on the cross for your sin and for mine to bring us back to himself and to reconcile us to God for eternity, to give us a hope and a future and to make us people who are heirs of eternal life with Jesus. And so I think we'd be remiss if we left this subject without challenging you with this question. Do you belong to Jesus? Have you made that decision to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because he is the only way, the truth, and the life to get to heaven, to be in a place where we can experience the redemption work of Jesus of all things and reign with him and be with him forever. And Jesus tells a parable about guests that will be at this eternal wedding celebration. And he says that only those who are invited and those who are on the guest list can come. There are no wedding crashers in heaven. You have to know the groom who is Jesus and you have to know his bride who is the church in order to be a part of that wedding celebration for eternity. So do you know the groom? Do you know the bride? There's a simple way to know. Is your allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom, or does something else own your heart? Have you had a point in your life where you've decided, Lord, all that I've done to trust my, in myself and this world is over now, and I want to trust and follow you, Lord Jesus, and I confess that my sin has separated me from you, but that because you loved me, you died and rose again, so that through your grace and mercy, I could be forgiven, I could be reconciled to you, and I could be an heir of eternal life. If that doesn't describe you, I want to pray for you in a couple minutes when we close. 
And I want to pray that, uh, that, you know, we've been talking a lot about like the confidence level, what heaven may look like. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you'd have a confidence level of 10, that no matter what heaven looks like, that you will be there at that eternal feast one day. Let me finish with this. It's the reason why we went through this for two weeks. It circles back to the way I introduced this whole, whole topic. And it's fitting because it's from the author of the book who I read 15 years ago, and it really changed my perspective on not only heaven but my spiritual life. And it says this, Like a bride's dreams of sharing a home with her groom, our love for heaven should be overflowing and contagious, just like our love for God. Our passion for God and our passion for heaven should be inseparable. The more I learn about God, the more I get excited about heaven. The more I learn about heaven, the more I get excited about God. If you lack a passion for heaven, I can almost guarantee it's because you have a weak, deficient, or distorted theology of heaven, or you're making choices that conflict with heaven's agenda. A robust, accurate, and biblically energized view of heaven will bring new spiritual passion to your life. And so I want to pray that for all of us, that this renewed vision of heaven, whether these past two weeks have just been a reminder of things you already knew and maybe relit a flame for a passion and the things that will come, or maybe you've learned quite a bit and it's stretched your imagination. You're not sure how you feel about it and you want to throw something at me because I said animals might talk in heaven, those kinds of things. That's okay. I want that to stretch you. And hopefully those things and that struggle brings you in the end what we really need, which is a greater passion for Jesus, a spiritual flame in us that'll boil over into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning knowing that you have made a way for us through Jesus Christ, that it's because you loved us, and it's because you wanted to redeem us and reconcile us to yourself, that Lord Jesus, you went to the cross on our behalf that the penalty of sin would be paid and that we would be reconciled to God through the grace and mercy poured out on the cross, that we would be forgiven and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, that as you rose from the dead, you secured victory over death once and for all and over sin once and for all. So that even though we are imperfect right now and we're struggling through life, trying to imagine what it might look like one day to be a part of this wonderful place that you have prepared for us, Lord Jesus, as you said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. We trust in that promise, and we look forward to that day. And so, Father, I want to pray for anyone in this room or anyone watching on, online that may be in that place of trying to make that decision. What does it mean to belong to Jesus? And I pray, Father, that you would lead them to a place of acknowledging that although their sin had separated them from you, that in Jesus they can be brought back to be reconciled and forgiven and to receive the promise of new life for eternity as an heir. And Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you have done that for us and that you will be our king today and forever and that you are making all things new. We thank you for the work and the truth and the promise that you are making all things new. We certainly need that right now. As Romans 8 says, creation groans out. We are literally hearing creation groan out on a daily, momentary basis all around us. And so, Lord Jesus, come. Come and make all things new. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. And God, we thank you that you have loved us so much that this has been your plan from the beginning. That although we turned our backs on you and rebelled us, you planned from the beginning that you would reconcile all things to yourself and you would make a place for us. We pray all these things in the one who makes it possible. 
in Jesus. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. One day, I hope to see all of you, I think we all hope to see all of each other uh, there in the eternal state rejoicing together. And so if you have question about that and you have doubt and you don't know, we encourage you to talk to one of us if you would like. We're available at any point, even if you just want to email us and talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And also, if you are at home and you know somebody who's a Christian, maybe somebody who sent you the link to watch the sermon online today, follow up with that person. Ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? I don't know that I'm sure. And I'm sure they'd be happy to pray for you and talk with you about it. So be encouraged by that. I want to remind you that as we leave, we are doing things a little bit differently this morning, and we're in this place right now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dismiss the room, uh, wedding style as we've called it, which means row by row from the back. And so our ushers will help you dismiss from the back row starting to the, and going to the front. And then as you leave here this morning, remember we have a town hall meeting if you want to join us to discuss the upcoming uh, budget for the fiscal year that starts in July. Uh, if you're a member and you want to be a part of that discussion and you want to vote, that would be the place to find us immediately following this service over in the theater room for the town hall. Thanks, guys. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Happy Father's Day. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.